Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday the 19th of February and you are very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. I'm joined today by Fia Kelly and Jennifer Bray from our political staff. Hi guys. Hello. Um, word of the day is Otios. Um, it appears in Pat Leahy's column, which I'm sure all our listeners have read from last Saturday, about the current negotiations, if they can be dignified as such. Otios means uh, serving no practical purpose or result and Pat applies it to the negotiations. I went to the trouble of searching for the word OTOs on irishtimes.com. It hadn't appeared since last July in a column by a Mr. P. Leahy. Um, what was the so context then? So it's about, it was actually about Boris Johnson and it was about Theresa May's government was indulging in OTOs uh, negotiations. Podcast. And before that, the last time it appeared was in a crossair uh, crossword. <laughs> so that shows that shows how popular how popular it is. So let's hope this podcast is an OTOs then. Let's, let, let's hope not. But he had a point all the same because OTOs isn't a bad word for all these shenanigans that are going on at the moment with people visiting people and having chats to no particular end, Fiuk. Yeah, it's kind of where we were last week. People having preliminary meetings, ruling people in, ruling people out. Tomorrow, of course, is the first sitting of the 33rd Dáil election of Taoiseach, election of Keon Corla, and that is seen as a kind of a the first clarifying point along this road at which people will then move on to the next phase of talking, which is where you would see perhaps more substantive discussions between people such as Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael perhaps, um, although Fianna Gael don't want anything to do with it for now, but you would see maybe Fianna Fáil engage in a more substantive way with people like the Greens, the Social Democrats, others. we don't even have a Fianna Fáil negotiating team appointed yet, we anticipate that will come in the next 24 hours, so perhaps what tomorrow will mark will be when Fianna Fáil start to engage properly in this process. But up to now, yes, it has been kind of relatively meaningless preliminary meetings, you know, Sinn Féin meeting a lot of people, but the nature of those meetings seem to be very early sketches of where they might go. They haven't really sat down with the Greens yet. I think that's due to come on Friday or Thursday later in the week. Um, And their meetings with the smaller groups and independents are very much, you know, sketching each other out. And what happens at these meetings? Are they real meetings in any way, Jennifer? They're more exploratory to see, you know, could we potentially have talks? That they're, you're not getting down into the nitty gritty of it yet. Um, and you won't see anything major happening until after tomorrow. And I think what we've seen over the last couple of days is actually some of the, the bigger parties pushing this narrative, which is that Mary Lou MacDonald uh, won the popular vote. And if the Sinn Féin party want to form a government of the left, then they should go and do that. Even though Owen O'Brien was out last week and said that the numbers weren't there when he was asked, you know, how do you form a government without Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael? And he said, you can't. Um, but I think what happened over the weekend was that we saw the front pages of some Sunday newspapers basically saying that a grand coalition deal was done. And uh, one paper kind of divvied out the portfolios, um, which was fascinating to uh, political correspondents like us, probably news to the politicians themselves. And um, I was in here on Sunday and doing a ring around ahead of the Fine Gael Parliamentary Party meeting on Monday and spoke to as many of them as I could. And there was a real sense of, oh, 
God, I don't know about that now, but what you should really be thinking about is Sinn Féin. How are they going to form a government? And they wanted to form this narrative that it's not up to us. Um, we're going into opposition. Um, Leo Varadkar then said on Sunday night, um, in a quote to our paper and other, other papers, a number of other papers as well, that um, he relished the opportunity to go into opposition, but if he, he would go into government, Fine Gael would go into government as a last resort. So I think once I heard that, I knew that this would be all that we would hear up until... Thursday and what I heard from one or two senior people in Fianna Fáil was that they wanted to see how many people vote with Mary Lou Macdonald in the nominations for Taoiseach on Thursday and they want to see how big is that block um, and I suspect who can be swayed in the independence they're going to need more than just Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil if they're going to go down that road. So did Ona Bryn jump the gun on RT Radio last Friday when he essentially said that a left-wing alliance wasn't feasible or was that part of just this kind of complicated game of chess that's going on at the moment? He's probably just acknowledging the reality which is what most of Sinn Féin people say to you in private like they readily acknowledge you know this is impossible unless we get one of the other big two one of the other big three excuse me to play ball with us so perhaps he was acknowledging it publicly before the others in the party were ready to Um, you know Mary Lou MacDonald's statement earlier this week was kind of a halfway house. She said, Look, obviously we are pursuing a left-wing government and a left-wing alliance, but we are conscious of the fact that the numbers are very difficult, etc., etc., etc. So she's re- acknowledging what O'Brien was saying as well. So, you know, look, you can't deny reality for that long. You know, in much as Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael would say, yeah, look, it's up to you guys to put together, together a minority government, and it is possible that they could do so. They also acknowledge that it's impossible. And this whole process of this week is, you know, highlighting the weakness of their position, forcing them to acknowledge and demonstrate to the public that behind the narrative of we won the election, we won the popular vote, which they did, they don't have the most seats. Uh, They are just shy of Fianna Fáil's 38, but it is extremely difficult for them to put together a government. And I think it's about bringing Sinn Féin probably to eat a bit of humble pie, if that means makes any sense. And is that likely? Because I'm very unclear as to who holds the best cards here. Well, Fianna Fáil have the most seats, as of now. But um, whether they take on the, the role of, you know, they are, they are going to take on that role probably in the next few days of trying to assemble a government. But I think what they would like Sinn Féin to do is to acknowledge that they are not the only bloc in this stall and they don't have the numbers on their own to do this. And there is a genuine view amongst people in Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael that they made exorbitant promises weren't examined by the electorate. Now is the time to subject them to the full glare of parliamentary scrutiny, uh, parliamentary arithmetic and media attention to what they are actually promising. I mean, the Fine, the Fine Gael position, which I think particular Fiac has described there, which is really to sit back and say, we're perfectly happy to go into opposition. Off you go. Show us, you know, show us how your manifesto actually works in, in practice. That's grand in one way, but can easily kind of be read as just people throwing their toys out of the pram as well. Yeah, absolutely. And there's this really strange rhetoric that, you know, okay, Sinn Féin should go off and form a government. And if you actually look at it, where the parties landed in terms of seat numbers, they're actually not that far away from each other. And I'd say people who voted for Fine Gael are kind of looking at them now and going, hold on a minute, I voted for you maybe to keep Sinn Féin out and you're just going to go and relinquish all responsibility. It is a strange position to see you know, I remember Leo Varadkar saying just a week and a half ago, don't write our polit- political obituary just yet. And then he kind of goes and writes it himself by saying, oh, OK, right, we'll just go over to the opposition benches. So it's unusual, um, but it is part of a game. It's politics. They're, they want this narrative to form that uh, Sinn Féin 
couldn't form a government and that they step in as in the national interest. And I'm sure there are people in Fine Gael who would argue that it's not all as purely political as I say and that they do genuinely believe that they won the least number of seats so they should be in opposition. Mm. But I can imagine there are a lot of people out there who voted for either for Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael and are saying, what are you doing? Like, get off your hands. You know, they're, not, they're only a couple of seats away from each other in the doll. It's not like Sinn Féin won 55 seats and Fianna Fáil won 20. They're all in the 30s, mid to late 30s. So... To what extent are we kind of fighting the last war here in that back in 2016, there was a whole, you know, we hadn't really been in this kind of a world before. And there was a lot of kind of distress expressed about the fact that it took so long, 70 days or or, or more to actually form a government. But now the way people talk about it, they say, well, it took 70 days the last time. So it takes as long as it takes. And there's the exploratory talks and then things break down and then we'll finally perhaps end up with something in May. Has, In other words, has the agenda as it turned out of the last uh, government formation is that how much is that influencing this government formation um to a significant extent because um i think the parties involved want to not train the public is probably the wrong word but they want the public to become used to this process taking a long time that whereas before we were used to an election happening a coalition being slapped together in a couple of weeks if not days sometimes that this is now a much more complicated process and I think what they're trying to do in saying that this is going to take a long time is they're trying to carve out some breathing space for themselves they know that a time will come when the public pressure will be brought to bear on them to form a government but they're not ready to confront that yet they're not there yet so what they're doing is they're trying to create a bit of elbow room and also what happened the last time was that without those confidence supply talks there was a, a process of getting the public and the electorate used to a new way of forming government so there was a couple of weeks where people had to be educated in how confidence supply works what it was uh, what it meant the shape of the new government and if you speak to people who there is a reflection going on behind these public positions in the various parties some people in Fianna Fáil say you know, what happened last week was essentially Middle Ireland fright, that Middle Ireland was kind of, their instinctive reaction to a Sinn Féin surge was to, you know, say they must be kept out at all costs, we must stop them. And some people say, well, you know, Middle Ireland needs to get used to the fact that this has happened, and things have changed, and it's not the way it used to be. And perhaps an element of this process is allowing that to happen, allowing people realise that the previous certainties are no longer there, that either Sinn Féin comes into government or it becomes the major force on the opposition bench. And almost certainly ends up in government yes. after the so next there's, election. There's a, there's a level of, I think, climatisation to certain elements of Irish society need to come to terms with that and perhaps that process is about that actually happening. Well, that's all very civic-spirited and obviously forming government is all very civic-spirited and an education lesson is always a good thing. But surely underlying all this is the raw self-interest of the parties themselves, Jennifer. And the the three parties, it seems to me, are in somewhat different positions. Sinn Féin are obviously, you know, top dogs at the moment. They're the most popular party in the country in terms of the popular vote. They've had their best ever election result. They're, they're on the up. Fine Gael, it seems to me is positioning itself for a future where it has a much more clearer, I suppose, you know, binary choice between a party of the centre-right like them and a party of the of the left and the nationalist left like Sinn Féin. But the ones who are really in trouble and might get into more trouble are Fianna Fáil. They face, I, I, existential threat is a bit of a cliche, but it does look like an existential threat to me. Yeah, I think Michal Martin is in a really difficult position, actually. Um, you know, he is damned if he does and he's damned if he doesn't. 
So if he goes in with Sinn Féin, um, then obviously, the, well, we all know it's been well rehearsed, the reasons why Fianna Fáil don't want to go in with Sinn Féin. Uh, and they said repeatedly throughout the campaign that they would not, and this was for reasons of, um, it's for the past and, and also for their policies as well. And then, of course, if you, they go into grand coalition with Fine Gael, that is another, like, uh, talking to people in the party in Fianna Fáil, they just had this kind of existential crisis about what will happen to the party. Will we be just subsumed into Fine Gael? And if you look at grand coalitions across Europe, what tended to happen um, was that they go in as a grand coalition or a semi-grand coalition, and then they get smaller and smaller, and the parties on the outside are allowed to get bigger and bigger, so parties like Sinn Féin. And they worry that if they went in together, because the numbers are there, and that's the obvious road, road to go down, that you're going to allow Sinn Féin to become potentially the most dominant force in, in Irish politics and completely overtake them. Um, so, you know, and then there's the third option, which is confidence and supply again. Um, and nobody wants to go down that road because Fianna Fáil, uh, because they were in this confidence and supply deal with Fine Gael, have been intrinsically linked with the decisions made by the previous government. So I read with interest uh, Jared Howland, who worked as an advisor to the last Fianna Fáil government, Bertie Ahern's government, um, and he has a column in the Irish Examiner, and he is extremely critical of Fianna Fáil's posture at the moment over the last few days, and also uh, foresees a pretty bleak prospect for the party as well. Yeah, he, he takes issue with the fact that there has been uh, a bit of a silence from the higher echelons of Fianna Fáil in the last week and a half since polling day. If you think back, Michal Martin came out on the Sunday of Count Weekend and kind of left the door ajar to entering government with Sinn Féin. There was a visceral reaction back to that, uh, both from, you know, elements of the media and um, from someone who's on front bench. Jim O'Callaghan strikes you as the most obvious one. Then what happened is he went into his parliamentary party room, uh, put down a position which was kind of adopted by the parliamentary party. They wouldn't talk to Sinn Féin. Went on the six o'clock news and we haven't seen him since. And I think they're, what you're at in Fianna Fáil now is <clears throat> the second stage of this where there is a loosening up amongst the parliamentary party now that if you chat to them, suddenly criticism of Martin, the campaign, the party direction it comes much easier to the lips now of people in Fianna Fáil than it did two or three weeks ago. And I think what Jerry Howland spoke to today is what a lot of some people in Fianna Fáil are aware of and are worried about is this is a really, really important strategic point in the road for the party. If they go in with Fianna, Fianna Gael, they essentially decide that they are a middle-class party that speaks to an older cohort of the electorate. If they go in with Sinn Féin, they can try and wrestle back that level of support they had in working class and lower middle class areas that they prided themselves on for decades and decades. And Martin himself has spoken about they have now surrendered that largely to Sinn Féin. But if they decide to go in with Sinn Féin, they risk alienating the middle classes who voted for them and the perhaps older voters who voted for them in trying to keep Sinn Féin out. But they then, did they surrender their claim to those lower middle class areas and working class areas that has been their bread and butter for years and years and years. So they face a really difficult choice here. And if they decide to go in with Sinn Féin, which seems unlikely as of now, could they turn that ship around? Like if you look at their vote, not only in Dublin, in the greater Dublin area drops substantially, not only Dublin, the commuter counties, Loud, Mead, Kildare, Wicklow. They're really weak there. So what is their road to winning that back? They won't get that back by is, going into coalition with Fine Gael. But it, did they get it back by going in with Sinn Féin? And someone in Sinn Féin said to me this week, they were kind of chatting privately, and they, they think... The, the view in Fianna Fáil and the view of people in Fianna Fáil is we won't hap let, allow happen to us what happened to the SDLP. 
that Sinn Féin would just eat them alive. And the view in Sinn Féin as well, the reason the SGLP went the way they did is they didn't work with us. They just fought us all the time. And if Fianna Fáil want to go down the road of fighting us all the time, that will happen. But if they want to work with us, then there there is a road back for them. Now, said the spider to the fly, as you can imagine. <laughs> but that is a, the, the huge conundrum facing Fianna Fáil. And one of the front bench put it to me after a few days after party. He goes like, you know, basically we have to decide do we want to become a party for the old and the middle class? Out of the frying pan into the fire. I don't know. That's that, that, that's just an impossible choice, isn't it? That's why I say it's an existential threat, Jen, isn't it? The, the Fianna Fáil, which we've, which I've known for most of my life, which is the coalition which which Fiat describes, is dying and it's over. Oh, I don't know about that, but um, it is. In, it, not only do they face those threats and the existential threat and the threat of what happens if we do this in the future, what might happen, blah blah blah, all that kind of stuff. But there's also the question of the promises that they made during the election campaign, and a lot of people may have voted for Fianna Fáil on the basis that they would not go in with Sinn Féin, um, and they have to think about that as well. You know, if you're seen to break these promises, what do they mean? I know a lot of people will l- listen to the promises politicians make and say, "Oh, really? Yeah, seriously, can we take that?" But they were very strong on it. And I think that they have already set down a marker that they won't go in with Sinn Féin. I would be surprised if they changed that. Um, But equally, I remember being at a press conference with Jim O'Callaghan and Dara O'Brien and asking them, is there any circumstance at all under which you can see Fianna Fáil going into a grand coalition with Fine Gael if the numbers just aren't there after the election? And Dara O'Brien said, absolutely not. Uh, We made a promise. We're going to stick to our word and we will not go back on it. And Jim O'Callaghan said, no. I mean, I understand, like I said already, politicians break their promises. But, you know, this just shows you the position that they're in. They promised that they would never do X, they would never do Y, where people love our word. And now they're standing there and they're the only options. When TD said to me, well, I said, well, you promised not to go in with Sinn Féin, you promised not to go into Fine Gael. But he said, wait, Fine Gael was a different type of promise. Like, <laughs> that's what they said, you know, as that's if one great. was a harder promise than the other. So um, a mortal promise and a venial promise. Yeah, yeah. A, yeah. Promise. a couple of them now kind of regret that. The like, promise for the Sinn Féin promise. Mm-hmm. Like, a couple of them now go, if we didn't, they had no choice probably. Like, they really, <laughs> they're in such a bind. They're kind of aware that the promise they made has basically boxed them in uh, to the position they now find themselves. And perhaps they were slower to see the Sinn Féin surge, the Sinn Féin surge in particular amongst people who traditionally voted for them. And kind of one of them said to me yesterday, if you look at the last week of the campaign, that heavy bombardment about Sinn Féin and who would go in with Sinn Féin, that vote went back to Fine Gael. It didn't go back to us. And perhaps there's a lesson there for us as this TD said in that you know people have decided we're the less we're the riskier option when it comes to Sinn Féin so let's just embrace it Mm. well moving then from the existential and the long term to the material and the very short term uh, the doll will return tomorrow and uh, one of the first items of the agenda is the election of of Ikan Corla um, always an exciting thing. Super. <laughs> yes. He said, trying to, try, try to whip up some Ooh. excitement here. Um, it is an important role. Um, it, there, there's a number of factors that go into the decision and how it's made. It is a secret ballot, I think I'm right in saying. Yes, it's secret ballot by PRS TV uh, amongst all members of the Dáil. If there's a contest, obviously. Yeah. yeah. And we haven't, I, I think nominations close at six o'clock this evening, is that mm-hmm. correct? Yeah. But right, we're, yeah. we have a pretty clear idea of who a couple of the front runners are at this point anyway. Shauna Fareel. Shauna Fareel, the Ciarán uh, of the last Dáil, wants to stand again. It's actually kind of well thought of. Um, member deemed, of Fianna Fáil. Member of Fianna Fáil, deemed to have done a good job, was very good to independents and smaller parties in the last also they'd be naturally inclined to support him anyway at this point in time um, it looks like Fine Gael aren't going to put anybody forward there was talk that 
you know, Frankie Feehan, Fergus O'Dowd and Bernard Durkin might go for it. They've all withdrawn. Uh, Catherine Murphy of the Social Democrats let her name float out there before pulling it back in. Uh, Dennis Nocton and Independent seems to be probably a serious candidate as mm. well. Um, but probably hard to see by for real at this point. Is there any and party discipline in these votes? You know, do, do, are people instructed to and do they follow those instructions in well, terms of voting matter a secret to do ballot? It's a secret ballot yeah. so you can do whatever you Not like. Not particularly. I think that Leo Varadkar told his PP the other night, you know, that there there would be no instruction but kind of reminded his party of the numbers as in don't go off voting for one of our own more or less. Some of them took that to mean mm. you would imagine that Fianna Fáil tonight at their parliamentary committee might decide that they'll support the Fianna Fáil candidate. Um, Sinn Féin will they put somebody up and if they do where does the, their second preferences go as well and because there's a you know there's, there's a fine balance as we know between the three big parties now so losing one is not insignificant no, no it's a numbers game look how much the numbers mattered in the last couple of months in the, in the Dáil every TD lost in, in Fine Gael was a serious blow and when we saw this, the second or well actually the last um, motion of confidence which I think was an old Murphy before Christmas that's when the, the realisation hit in they don't have the numbers anymore um, so it does matter it does matter to be able right. to confidently return and does that not perhaps make a fall of 38 TDs with Sean O'Friel if Sean O'Friel mm. becomes Cam Coyle they drop back to 37 they're on parity with Sinn Féin and does that not make an independent a more attractive candidate from the point of view of the party managers at least it probably would but if a Fianna Fáil TD has gone up for it it would take probably you know a big act of disloyalty or, you know, stepping outside the tribal uh, surrounds for Fianna Fáil to back a non-Fianna Fáil candidate. And it would probably tell you something about what their intentions are. If, as seems now likely, that Fianna Fáil are, the Fianna Fáil leadership at least, are intent on entering some sort of arrangement with Fianna Gael, if they allow Sean off to be elected, that tells you that they may, that's where they're going because that'll be, there'll be two seats ahead of Fianna Gael then. Last of all, a lot of people read into the fact that Sean O'Friel was given the support of his party to run for Keonkora, that that was effectively Martin throwing in the towel and becoming Taoiseach that time. Is it somewhat telling that we've barely discussed the calibre of the candidates and the skills which might be required for this important position? Uh, well, uh, I don't know. I'm not going down that road. Um, but I think Sean O'Farrell, like uh, Fiat said, is very well regarded um, amongst smaller parties, independents, obviously his own party, but he's also very well regarded by the staff in the Oireachtas. Mm. Um, and he has kind of this really... It's a good reputation and he's quite likeable and I, I think he actually did a good job and as much as he can yeah. do it's, it's, in the last all. It's a funny position. So you're like what, what the public see is the person sitting in the chair in the doll and, you know, refereeing proceedings. In the Oireachtas, it's a, it's you're effectively the, the person who runs the Oireachtas. So the Keown Corral, in conjunction with the Secretary General of the House of the Oireachtas, set the tone for how the Oireachtas run. And perhaps declare <laughs> personal interest, I'm chairman of the press gallery. So my dealings will be with the Keown Corps of the day on behalf of the Press Corps in Leinster House. And it's it's stuff as mundane as office space, you know, rules of the Oireachtas, rules of the press gallery, that type of thing. And in contrast to his predecessor, Sean Barrett, who is a spiky character, to put it diplomatically, um, O'Friel has had been a vast, vast improvement and is well regarded across the house, I okay. think. So we know where your vote's going anyway, Fick, if nothing else. <laughs> moving, on to, moving on to another job vacancy. Um, the Labour Party leadership uh, contest is underway for the leadership of a party which has just had, uh, I just checked on Wikipedia actually, its worst ever electoral result in the history of the state. 4.4%. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely terrible. So we have two hats in the ring, Jen. Yeah, so we've got Alan Kelly and Aona Reardon and I... I Watching Alan Kelly yesterday launching his his bid for the leadership, I just was struck by 
how different it was to when he went for it in 2016. When he went for it in 2016, he went on The Late Late Show and he walked into the room to the tune of that song, I Want It All and I Want It Now. Uh, he was high-fiving Ryan Tuberty and, you know, when he was asked questions about, um, you know, who's seconding you? He's like, oh, he didn't really have the answer. Um, this time was so different, you know. Back then he was real kind of like rambunctious or something and, and very like, I'm going to be the leader. This time it was more methodical. He uh, appeared at a press event flanked by a very large amount of uh, former TDs. For, yeah, there were uh, a lot of them. There were a lot and some heavy hitters in there, um, like John O'Sullivan. So... And he also painted a different picture of himself. He got kind of choked up when he was talking about how humbled he was to have the support of the party. Um, and it's just a different version, or at least portraying a different version of the Alan Kelly that we've seen being hoisted up on the shoulders of his followers, kind of roaring with delight at being elected or saying that power is a drug. Um, and I think that that is very deliberate. Um, he was asked about that yesterday. Does he still think power <laughs> is a drug? And he said no. But actually one of the more interesting responses at the press conference yesterday was, Willie Penrose was there, who was TD for Longford Westmead, no longer is, but an influential voice in the party, was asked at the press conference yesterday why he was supporting Alan Kelly now and didn't sign his nomination papers four years ago, was it? 2016. And he spoke to what Jen is saying there. He said he's matured as a person. He's grown up. He's grown he? up as he's a person. Up. And he said, I, he said, I remember having that. He goes, he was saying, yeah, like, an, he was actually saying, this is a proud moment for me. Alan Kelly comes from the same labour tradition I do, which is kind of the rural labour, provincial uh, town vote, uh, labour party uh, tradition. But he said, I remember having that conversation with Alan at the time and telling him just to wait. Like, you know, his time will come, but now it's not the time. And, you know, I think Kelly tried to reflect that when he did yesterday. So there's a clear divide, it seems to me, on the one hand, between, you know, Kelly from Tipperary, uh, John O'Sullivan is backing him from Limerick, uh, Sean Sherlock from Cork. Sign his papers a couple of years ago. And, and Willie Penrose, as you say. But he's also managed to kind of uh, hoover up a couple of important Dublin backers as well, including Duncan Smith, the new TD for... Yeah, Duncan Smith, the new TD for Fingal, uh, supporting him. And at the press conference yesterday, there were some... Uh, old Labour faces there from Dublin so Joanna Tuffy who was a TD for Dublin Midwest didn't get elected this time um, the Uptons uh, Mary Upton and her son Henry Upton Robert Dowds another former TD so there was a kind of scattering I think I think a couple of uh, Dublin candidates were there as well So did he get the jump on Aon O'Reardon? He did get the jump on him a bit and I think what the Kelly people are trying to cast it as you know it's a, Kelly said yesterday I want to go back to basics, back to our communities. Or Reardon came out and said, you know, we've tried that every time we've been defeated in the past. Someone says that. And the Kelly camp were, you know, kind of casting it as the Labour lovies versus the, the, the rural Labour set. So, you know, into that. So, so what are the Labour what are Well, the Labour lovies would be like people who would traditionally be associated with social issues. So, you know, people in the party who would be... So Rebecca Moynihan will be your, will be your obvious the councillor who ran and didn't get elected in Dublin South Central and the view of, of the Kelly people is that the Labour lovies have not only led the party for a long time they've had control of the party machinery for far too long and they wanted to change that. These were the people who thought, Jen, that Labour would benefit enormously from the referendums on social issues because it it drove them and then that proved not to be the case at all, obviously, in the 2016 election. Yeah, I mean, I I would disagree with you in that I don't think... I I do think it did play a a small role. Like, if you look in Dublin Bay North where there was kind of a focus on who is the... Uh, um, anti-abortion candidates and who aren't like David Healy he did say that he came up on the doors That was the Green candidate who so, su- yes. quite surprisingly lost quite surprised. Yeah. and he was tipped to win a seat and he didn't and, Quite and, the hatchet job, yeah And he said that um, it did come up on the doors and, and it did become an issue So, uh, but I, w- I would agree with your main point which is that it, that 
kind of politicisation that was expected after those referendums didn't really happen. And I think we've pieces in the paper today showing that kind of the vote for change was driven by the over 50s and Labour, to a certain extent, missed out in that regard. Um, um, they missed out in many regards, actually. And I think now there was some talk um, that maybe under a new leader, the party might change its position on going into government or being part of government formation talk. But we saw yesterday yeah. there's under both candidates, there's absolutely no chance. Plus, so there's unanimity on that. Yeah. And also that the, um, the, the contest won't be wrapped up until April. Mm. So there's no chance of, well, hope not. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard not to feel simply for Labour on that front. Like the marriage equality referendum wouldn't have happened without them in government. Um, even though various other people jumped on the bandwagon as it happened, including Fine Gael, their partners in government at the time. They weren't in government when the uh, referendum to repeal the 8th happened, but they did a long, long slog on that particular issue, including bringing in the Protection of Life During Pregnancy Bill, forcing that on the agenda and onto the statute books as well during their time in office in 2011, 2016. So it is, you, you have to feel sympathy for them that they've kind of be forgotten that, you know, as we've discussed in this podcast before, the repeal movement um, probably and the marriage equality movement sprang various political activism for it, but it went everywhere. It went to the Sock Dems, it went to all Sinn Féin, yeah. it went all across the place. Labour were one of the primary movers on those issues and didn't benefit from it. But I think what, what Kelly is probably saying is it's time to move past that mm. and move on to more bread and butter issues. Although is it not the case that one of the problems, and yes, you're right, that obviously the vote is splintered in all kinds of ways, but the, the, the first and most obvious one is that there are now six Sock Dem TDs and there are six Labour TDs. And as many, many people have pointed out, the parties are very close in, in many of their core policies. Kelly and in Collins. a way, the Social Democrats... Uh, did benefit to some extent from that post post repeal kind of a vote. They represent that more convincingly kind of clean, in some ways. They were a clean skin version of Labour. They were Labour that hadn't been through the government of twenty eleven and twenty sixteen and associated with policies. That, an unsullied Labour, yeah, yeah. An unsullied Labour. And that raises the question, doesn't it? Of I mean, both these men were in the government um, from twenty eleven to twenty sixteen. One was a senior minister. One was a junior minister. They're obviously not as associated as Brendan Howland was with that government. But still, that question still lingers over them. Do you apologise? Do you um, do you kind of uh, disclaim responsibility for it? Or do you just abase yourself before the electorate and say we made a terrible mistake? How do you handle that? Well, I think it would, Alan Kelly clearly said it's, it, it's just a matter of moving on. Now, he obviously, years ago, he would have been associated mainly with water charges. He would have been the Minister of the Borough, water charges. Over the last couple of years, he's realigned himself and now he's kind of the voice of women's healthcare, backed by uh, Vicky Phelan, um, did great work uh, in relation to the cervical check controversy, has knuckled down on the Public Accounts Committee, made a name for himself as kind of a forensic questioner and stuff like the Children's Hospital. And I think he has reshaped his image over the last couple of years. So I think he can go forward and say, well, look, okay, yes, that was then. This is now. When you're in government, you have to make difficult decisions. Anybody who's been there knows that. But it's time to move on. This is years later. And I think he'll be able to do it quite he effectively. Said the time, he actually said yesterday, the time for apologising is over. Yeah. We aren't like that. That is, is done. And by doing that, you just stop apologising. You just stop. So you talked about the time frame. What are the nuts and bolts of this thing? Who votes and when do they vote on it? So the membership votes. Um, so there's two ways of, of uh, becoming nominated. Um, you are seconded by two members of the, the parliamentary party or you can go and get the backing of five uh, constituency councils and I don't think anyone's going to go down that road. I think we're looking at a two-horse race. Um, and then it goes out for, for a ballot and that takes place all across March and I think the votes are counted in early April. I think April 3rd is in my head for some reason. April and there's 3rd. one person, one vote for every every member of the Labour Party. Yeah, so I mean, it, it once once they come in and count them, I'd say we'll know 
somewhere around April 3rd. So it's going to take some time. It it it, it does. There know. is a bit of chat in the party of truncating it to like three or four weeks, but that would require mm. both candidates to agree to that. Um, I think there is a possibility of that happening. It's only been discussed now and it'll have to be decided by the Labour Executive Council. But, you know, it, it, that it, I think most people involved in the party think it's a, a long, long it period of really time. It is a really long time. And I remember the last Labour leadership contests when John Burton uh, succeeded Eamon Gilmore. It went on for an awful long time. And Alan Kelly, as I say, seemed to get the jump, seemed to have uh, support from a number of not just senior politicians, but people who are probably kind of influential figures within the party and could be expected to be good persuaders in various parts of the country. Would it be fair to say that he's the favourite? I think he is, yeah. I, think I would he's agree. The yeah. But having said that, it's very hard to know what kind of work both men have been doing behind the scenes amongst the grassroots over the last couple of months. You could imagine the both of them, well, for Aon, he's on the back foot because he only just won his seat back, you know, and he would have been concentrating on that. And of course, Alan Kelly would have too, but he has always had his eye on the ball. He's wanted this since before 2016 so it's hard to imagine a situation in which Aon pulls ahead of him but like I said you just never know what's going on behind the scenes There is a bit of a sense among some of the TDs that Kelly has wanted it so badly that perhaps now is the time to let him have it but there's a campaign to be run We'll see what happens so we leave it there thanks very much to Jennifer and Fia Remember you can find us on all the usual platforms and at irishtimes.com slash podcast You can mail us at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com or you can usually find all of us on Twitter. Until the next time, thanks for listening.